What does healing mean to you? Living in the abundant fullness of life as God intended. podcast raising unanswered questions sharing unanswered prayers we are faith-based peer-led story-driven and stigma breaking i am tony roberts i am eric riddle and we are revealing voices Tony Roberts. Eric Riddle. Welcome back from your voyage to the West. Yes, and happy Holy Week. That's right, it's Palm Sunday. We did record the interview with Diana Gruber while you were out in California. Yes. And so we, we do want to jump right in to the interview and save conversation between us till the end. Yeah, Diana is uh, written a book, Companions in the Darkness, about seven saints who suffered with doubt and despair, depression. I found out about Diana. She reached out to me, actually, through a fellow writer, author, April Yamaski, pastor in uh, Canada. I read her book and thought she would be perfect to bring on both to address issues of faith and mental illness, but also our key question, what does healing mean to you? Yes. And for our listeners, you know, the format of our show, we have a conversation, Tony and me at the beginning, and then we go into the interview. We've decided that we want to focus more on the interview at the beginning of the show. So uh, the other thing we're doing is with our guests, we're really prompting them to start the conversation with what does healing mean to you? So you will notice that as a difference from our normal style. And after we run the interview, we will get on and we'll talk all about Tony's journeys, a little bit about Palm Sunday and the coming Easter week, and uh, we'll go from there. Tony, you made the introduction to yes. Diana. Yes. So how about we just uh, give a little bit of background. How did you all meet? Well, um, Diana, you contacted me first, right? I did. You knew through April Yamasaki? Yamasaki? Yes. Yeah. Say more about that. So we're both in the Redbud Writers Guild, and uh, it's a Christian female writer's community. It's been such a gift to me as a writer. So we know each other through that, and she had invited me to post an excerpt of the book on her blog. And so I was looking through a little bit to see um, some of the other mental health related stuff that she had, just to try to make sure it was complementary to what she has and wasn't overlapping or anything. And I stumbled upon your post and thought, oh, this sounds like somebody that I should meet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, shot you an email and here we are. Yes. And April has been, uh, we go back quite a ways. We go back to my, one of my first blog efforts and she is both a, a blogstress or I don't know, I don't know the name of uh, the, uh, but a pastor in her own right. 
and has published quite a bit with Christian Century and other periodicals. In fact, was an editor of a periodical for her denomination. That's great. Well, Tony and I go for walks around the, the neighborhood right between our houses. And uh, he's like, I'm reading this book by Diana Groover and can't put it down. And why don't you read it? And then we'll interview her. And I said, okay, let's go for it. So uh, I, I read over the weekend and very impressive. I can't wait to dive in this interview with you. You know, it, it's unique in that you're doing some scholarly work, diving into the personalities of some very well-known Christian leaders throughout the years, also some less well-known. Uh, but then you also weave into the story your own personal journey. Over the course of this interview, we do want to, you know, touch on those various aspects that you're covering in your book. Uh, the book is called Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. Thank you for this contribution to the, to the world here, Diana. And to start our conversation, let's talk about what does healing mean to you? I think if you forced me to define healing in one sentence, I would say that it's living in the abundant fullness of life as God intended. If I had to flesh that out a little bit more, <laughs> I would say that whenever I think, oh, what is healing, I have to ask the question, what is broken? You know, what needs to be healed? And so I think about all of the things that were broken as a result of the fall. There's a, a brokenness in our relationship with God. There's a brokenness in our relationship with other people. Um, there's brokenness that comes as a result of sin, whether that be our sin or the effects of other people's sin on us. And there's brokenness that comes with living in a, in a fallen world that, that has things like suffering and sickness and death and disaster. And, and there's this brokenness in creation and our experience of it. And, you know, I, I don't think that we will experience that full healing until the restoration of all things in the new heavens and new earth. But I think that we do have the privilege and the gift of seeing pieces of it or moments of it, or sometimes even just glimmers of it now. And so anytime that we move from that brokenness towards wholeness, <laughs> towards that fullness as God intended, where we are in whole, right, free, hopeful, joyful relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, and with the earth. I think anytime we move in that direction, we can call that healing and we can celebrate it. And, you know, as Christians, I think that there's something really beautiful in knowing that, that that's what God intends to do with us and with the world. He intends to bring full and final healing and so I think as Christians, we can we can take seriously the invitation to seek healing and be in some cases agents of healing, you know, whether it be finding healing in our own lives, our own story, or or being a part of that process for someone else. I think we can rejoice and, and find a lot of comfort in the fact that when we are engaging in that and we are seeing that healing, we can celebrate it as something that we know that God celebrates. And that he intends to do. One thing you do so well in your book uh, is to give people the opportunity to meet 
companions that really promote healing because uh, it's often when we're most alone that the pain and suffering we undergo is most severe. James Baldwin, the uh, essayist and novelist who has uh, documented much of the painful, uh, in his day, Negro existence, said this, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. And I know I felt that as I read your book and couldn't put it down. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, these were, you know, both you sharing your own story as a, as a, fellow uh, companion in this arena of mental health, but also, you know, these famous saints, as you call them, and as they've been called by others along the way. What first drew you into writing this book? It was a personal motivation, really. As you alluded to, I've struggled personally with depression. I share some of that story in the book. And um, when I first walked through that, I didn't know these stories. And like so many, along with all of the the symptoms of depression came a deep sense of guilt um, as a Christian that that maybe I was doing something wrong. And so then several years later, uh, when I started to stumble on some of these stories while I was in seminary, they just they started popping out to me. And I realized, oh, some of these people that I'm studying in church history, they struggled with depression too. And why have I never heard these stories? And I can't help but wonder, I mean, it, it's impossible to know from after the fact, but you know, would my experience have been different if I had had these companions when I was in those first deep seasons of depression, would they have helped to undermine some of the the stigma that I felt or the guilt that I felt? I think they would have. And so for me at the beginning, it was just, I needed to know these people. I was, I was curious. I, I wanted to learn from their stories. And then eventually it, it blossomed into this book and, and wanting to be able to share their stories with others who might be where I once was. Yeah, well, you did that very well. And, you know, I, I commend your your educators for those who encouraged you to to follow that path of your heart that, that sought out companionship and that then offers that with others. Thank you. Diana, when you got into the research, and actually but before I ask the question, I'm just going to read off the names of the people. Um, the chapters here, uh, Martin Luther, Hannah Allen, David Brainerd, William Cowper, Charles Spurgeon, Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King Jr. are the people you highlighted. And before we, we dive into any one of these, in your research, were you stumbling upon just many, many people, like you had to not include 30 titans of the faith no no i wasn't um the yeah so this is the challenge with studying something like church history it's a question of whose voices have been preserved that's the first issue the second issue is what of their voices have been preserved so some segments 
of church history, it's a lot of white men are the voices that we have most preserved, that we have the most um, resources about and, and firsthand accounts um, for certain segments of church history where they may not have been as comfortable talking about things like depression or, or mental health those things were not preserved or maybe weren't discussed with quite the same level of frankness. Um, and then even thinking now, even if we have primary sources that may have delved into this, have biographers kept up the thread to an extent that it's uh, easy enough to find their stories without just looking for a needle in a haystack. So some of these folks were very uh, clear front runners from the beginning. If you look up depression in church history, William Cooper and David Brainerd come up very soon. Um, their depression is just so prevalent in their story and is fairly well known. Some of the other ones you have to dig a little bit. And, and I tried really hard to only pick people that I felt like their personal story it was clear enough that they had struggled with something akin to what we now call depression, that I didn't have to pull something out of thin air, right? These are not cases that I'm trying to force a diagnosis onto someone or pull things out that were never there. There were some people that I think we could say were depressed, but there just wasn't enough information and I didn't want to force things or there just wasn't enough to write about them extensively. There isn't a long list. And I hope that as time goes on and as we continue to do good history and biography, that as those threads come up, that we can talk about them without fear or shame. Um, I, I'll never forget, I, I read one biography about Charles Spurgeon, who was very matter of fact about his own depression, but the biographer said explicitly, now I have to acknowledge that Spurgeon struggled with depression, but you just need to overlook that as his um, feet of clay because of all of the wonderful things that he did. Mm. <laughs> and that type of an attitude, it, it, it communicates something about depression. <laughs> it communicates something about the power of that story. And it implicitly led that biographer to highlight or not highlight certain parts of his story. Um, so I hope going forward that that as those threads come up, that that we can start paying more attention to them. Yeah, I think I think your book paves the way for that. I think my hope as well would be that uh, there would not, you know, d depression, mental illness, mental un unwellness would would not be an apology for not just struggling to get out of bed in the morning. You mentioned the power of the story. I I think. For me, as someone with bipolar disorder, with you know rapid mood swings, where I go from um, just grave abject despair to you know elevated highs, I read a book that would have you know this uh, how-to book, you know three three steps to greater you know, feeling better and. You know, I mean, it, it, there's a place for that, but there's also a place, a very big place to talk about, you know, look, let's look to scripture for uh, evidence of emotional hardship and looking to the Lord as the one who is our refuge and strength. And the people you name and the way that you tell their story, not apologetically, but 
you know, unapologetically gives the, the reader like me a chance to to embrace who who I am. Exactly. And and you know, I this belief grows deeper and deeper in me. The stories that we tell, not the content of the story, but the type of stories that we choose to tell communicate something in and of itself. Going back to that question of healing, if the stories that we hear only ever talk about healing as a supernatural thing that happens in full if you're faithful, then when that doesn't happen, we're left wondering where God is in our story, right? But if we can read stories like some of the ones in this book where they didn't experience full healing from depression, it might have happened for moments or seasons. Some of them, it barely happened at all. Yet sharing those stories and seeing how God was still there and still working in their life and still present with them and still using them, those types of stories give me a vision to see how he might show up when I'm in a similar place. And so I think to neglect these stories or to apologize for them, as you said, it does us a great disservice because it trains the way that we expect God to work and what it means for him to work and how we might fit into his story. And neglecting that, it does not only ourselves a disservice, but a disservice to all of our other brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. That's a very insightful statement. Was there a saint in the book with whom you most identified clearly and in what way? So I think I identified with each of them in in different ways. I identified with Hannah Allen as a mom. Um, I identified with Mother Teresa just wrestling with God's silence and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Without a doubt, the person that I was most drawn to was William Cooper. And he was a hymn writer and a poet in 18th century England. And it's a a bit surprising when I think of it, really, because his, I think, is the saddest story in this book. Because not only did he have this deep struggle with depression, but along with it came um, voices that he heard that that told him that he was forever separated from grace and could never be saved. And so he lived for the last large chunk of, of his adult life believing that that he could never be saved and he was forever cursed. And he died with that kind of despair. And um, I think that to me is is particularly painful, particularly tragic. But there was something about him that just drew me. Um, in spite of that despair, in spite of that depression that he struggled with, he was such a warm person. And I think thinking about how he tried to engage with the world and the very embodied things that were encouragements to him and helps to him are things that I identify with. So he gardened a lot mm. and he went mm. for walks. He had some of the best friends. I mean, you could write a book just about Cooper's friends. Yes. The, the Newtons, so John Newton, who is the author of Amazing Grace, he and his wife Mary were good friends with Cooper. And he, um, in one of his very deep, uh, depressive episodes, he, he couldn't get out of bed. And one day he got up and he walked across the garden to their house, showed up at the door, deeply depressed, suicidal, and he didn't leave for eight months. Eight, <laughs> 18 months. I can't, a, a very long time. Yes. And they cared for him. You yes. Know? And they did it willingly and lovingly and... So to see his friends, I think, was really beautiful. 
But yeah. to to see how he wrestled with this as a writer, you know, he he called writing poetry his best remedy. Something in in the embodied experience of these other things, his friends, his gardening, his pets, his walks, taking that in and pouring that into something creative gave him a place to to find a way forward somehow. Mm. And so I think as a writer and seeing even how writing this book about depression has kept me, I, I believe, from some deeper seasons of depression myself, I really identify with that, seeing that creative, generative work as a, a, a little bit of a remedy, uh, an avenue of healing, you know, an avenue to take that step towards maintaining wholeness and making sense of the world. That was something I really connected with in his story. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was also his best friend, Newton, you said, that wrote Amazing Grace. Correct. Um, and together they co-authored the only, only hymns? Is that what you call the, yeah. the book? Yeah, that's correct. Of yeah, and John Newton wanted Cooper to be able to get involved in the church, and he could see how his depression would kind of ebb and flow. And he thought maybe writing hymns would be helpful for him. And so that's part of why he conscripted him to write that with him was to as a way as a friend to try to give him an outlet and something creative to do um he, he wrote some other poems that that may or may not be as famous to people the task is one of his famous ones um another phrase that people may know that came from his pen ironically enough is variety is the spice of life so if you <laughs> that, you think of William Cooper. was there a particular saint who who Really, you struggled to, it was bringing you down. I don't know if bringing me down as much as frustrating me. And that was David Rainer. God <laughs> bless him. Um, and, you know, I I struggled to know what, what it was about him that, that sparked that frustration. I think it started with frustration at him. And then over time, as I thought about it, morphed into frustration for him. Because there were ways that it felt as though the theology and spirituality of which he was a part exacerbated his depression. And so part of me wanted to just take him by the shoulders and give him a good shake. <laughs> but then over time, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, these were the waters he swam in. He had mentors. He had people who should have been caring for him. And and they didn't do anything about it either. I mean, we all come from our own theological traditions. Uh, you know, we, we have to sort through what we believe, how we interpret things. And I'm a big believer in, in finding unity and the diversity and learning from each other. But if our theology does not give us a reason to live, but makes us long to die, if it doesn't do anything to speak words of grace and of God's, like our, our belovedness, then I think there's something there that need to, needs to be reevaluated. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he could call himself a worm, yeah, uh, the fact that he could say, oh, death, death, my kind friend, come and free me from this mortality. And it's not very clear whether he's, saying that because he's depressed and he wants to die or whether he's saying that because that's what the mode of spirituality would say was humility. Mm -hmm. yeah. The fact 
you can't parse that out is is really concerning, I think. And so that that gave me some things to think about, you know, as far as are there certain postures in our spirituality or in our theology that can be particularly unhelpful when people are, are in a place where they're really struggling with depression. Yes. Because he, and I say this explicitly in the book, you know, he was told by mentors to spend more time alone and spend more time fasting and spend more time in introspection, which just fueled this this depression mm-hmm. and this sense of self-loathing. And he probably could have benefited from someone like Martin Luther who would have said, you need to get out of your head get outside, go be with a friend, and stop thinking about it. Drink. <laughs> yeah, just, just go have a drink, David. Just go have a drink, buddy. <laughs> well, you picked up on Luther. Say more about Luther, because he's, of all the saints you've included, probably Luther and Mother Trace are the two most familiar for modern-day listeners. So Luther is the the famous German Protestant reformer. He he struggled um, episodically with depression throughout his his life, um, and he the first time I think we see it is whenever he was a monk. Um, he lived with this deep sense of anxiety and and this deep fear of God's judgment. There's stories about how his his confessor would say, "Don't please don't come back until you have a real sin to confess," <laughs> because he would pour over all of these things, you know, terrified that he was going to miss something. And he would later call these that spiritual trial and angst. Um, on was the word that he used. I don't think we can draw a one-to-one relation between between that and depression, but I think they have some some similarities as far as, you know, I think depression also inclines us to focus much more on on guilt and, you know, feeling like we are unworthy and and living with that that angst and that fear and that anxiety. Um, that we're that we're doing something wrong, that fear. And so I think whenever he speaks of that, very frankly, I think there are still some lessons that that we can learn from him in that. Um, but at other seasons throughout his life, sickness, um, he and his wife lost a child. She was 13, 14 years old, died in his arms. You know, the pressures of the Reformation, the pressures of political tensions in Germany at the time, definitely led to some seasons of depression for him. And to think that someone as great as Martin Luther could say, you know, I'm just fed up with the world. You know, I'm just done. There's nothing more in me. I think really humanizes him. And it gives me a little bit of space to say, okay, it's a, it's okay if I feel that sometimes too. His big piece of, of advice for, for one of his students who was struggling with depression and, and thoughts of suicide was to flee solitude, drink, joke, jest, go be with your friends. It's an interesting piece of advice advice for depression because depression makes you want to withdraw. It's the very opposite pull. You, you want to draw into solitude. Depression also dulls all of those things that would make you want to joke and laugh and enjoy these, these rich, tangible, earthy pleasures of God's good earth. And so I think it's a hard piece of advice to follow, but I think he's on to something in that, 
you know, when you're alone, when you're depressed, that just gives space for your thoughts to seethe. Even if you haven't struggled with depression, I think you probably have experienced being alone and having your thoughts just spiral deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> um, and so I think the the advice to even if you can't fully engage with people or you can't fully engage with these activities, you can't fully feel the delight that maybe you once did trying to resist some of those pulls and stay with people, even if you feel like you can't connect with them, you know, stay in these places where maybe sometimes a little bit of delight might just surprise you um, because you're there waiting for it. And we do it in fits and starts, right? We, we do it with baby steps, but I think, I think there's something in that piece of advice that's, that's very wise. And for him, it was hard one, you know, he knew what it felt like to be alone. And he knew what it felt like to not have life hold the same delight that it once did. I followed his advice and it, it feels like it's it's been helpful to me personally. It's good to hear uh, the lessons you're learning for your personal life, the application. And as you say, I think you said fleeing solitude, you know, seeking out friendship, seeking out that human connection has certainly played a massive role in my life and my own personal healing. In these stories, what other lessons have you drawn as applications to supporting your own mental health? For each person, I pulled out a main theme of advice. So maybe I'll go through those briefly and then make some connections about my personal life. So so Luther was the police solitude. Hannah Allen, um, the thing that's really beautiful about her story is she lived in 17th century and she struggled with depression that had a very religious fixation to it. There was a diagnosis at the time called religious melancholy that she fits the bill perfectly for. But even with that, the people around her did not say, we just need her to pray more and read the Bible and get her to church and she'll get better. They took care of her body <laughs> and they tried to get her connected to the medical care that she needed. Um, they tried to change her environment. They put her on suicide watch. So from her, I feel like, you know, especially because she comes from so long in the past, I think a story like hers helps to undermine some of that tension that some Christians feel about seeking mm -hmm. medical care and taking medication seeing a therapist. Um, so I think she kind of offers the advice, no, you are your body, mind, and spirit, and we need to take care of all of those things and not say, well, this is just a spiritual issue and, and you don't need to see a doctor. Um, so that's the that's some of the advice that I feel like I gleaned from her story. Uh, David Brainerd, I know we talked about, but for him, um, I was thinking about just the power of leaving, I call it a legacy of faithful weakness. So he didn't get to see a lot of the fruit of his work as a, as a missionary, but he has inspired generations of people after him. And it was just because in his weakness, both his physical weakness with physical illnesses, his mental health weaknesses with depression, he just tried to keep going as best as he could. And there was something in the faithfulness in the midst of his weakness, I think, that is the greatest piece of his legacy. Um, William Cooper, I know we talked about just the, the power of art and, and friendship. Charles Spurgeon, um, 
offered some good reflections on what the Bible can do and should do in the midst of depression. I know some people have gotten really bad advice as if the Bible is a cure-all, a silver bullet, but there is something in in the hope that is offered in the story of the Bible and in the, the story of the gospel that offers us anchoring points of hope when we're in pain. So it doesn't cure us, but by golly, we need it. We need to be reminded of who God is and his presence with the brokenhearted and his ability to redeem. Mother Teresa, I think, offers a, a really beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully in the dark. She didn't have the feelings. She didn't feel God's presence with her. She felt like she couldn't pray. And yet somehow she kept going. And so thinking about her story, I can't help but think that ultimately what we're invited to do is to follow Jesus and not our feelings. Feelings are great. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're God-given. But our feeling of God's presence or absence, our feeling of whether we have or do not have faith is not the ultimate litmus test of reality. And so there are some times where we have to say, I'm going to sit with this feeling. I'm going to sit with this longing, but I'm going to try to anchor myself in this other thing that I believe is true, regardless of whether or not I feel it. So I'm going to anchor myself that God has promised to keep company with me and be present with me and be faithful to me, even when I feel like he's left. And I think there's something in that 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 can offer us a way to keep going forward. And then finally, Martin Luther King Jr., um, he, I think, has has some some good things to teach us about what resilience looks like. And so thinking about in his story in particular, the resilience that came through humor, the resilience that came through music and song, and the resilience that came through his spirituality, and just the ability of those three things in his life to allow him to look the darkness, look pain, look the horrors that he faced square in the face, and yet not be overcome by them. That's, I guess, an overview of some of the advice from these folks. But as far as me personally, especially, we'll just say this last year, I mean, the pandemic, and, and I think us who are prone to depression, the, the isolation and, and the stress that has come with it. I know for me personally, I've really had to try to keep a good feel on, on where I've been mental health wise. So thinking, you know, if I'm having a day where I'm, I'm struggling and I'm feeling that pull, okay, I listen to William Cooper and I go out with my daughter and I dig in the dirt and we do some gardening. <laughs> you know, I, I listen to, to Martin Luther and sure, I may not be able to go have coffee with a friend, but I'm gonna try to call a friend on the phone or, or schedule a FaceTime. And so some of that advice, I feel like as the book has launched and as I've done interviews and talked with people and thought so much about these stories, their voices are in my head, you know, their their stories, their wisdom is now so much a part of how I think because I've talked about it so much and, and had to think about it. And so I feel like, you know, if I'm having a, a hard day and I need to find a way to go forward, there are little pieces of advice come to me. And and so it's been a gift to me. You know, I, I'm thankful to hear even Tony, you share about how you felt like the book was an encouragement to you, but I feel like it's a privilege 
to me to have been able to spend so much time with these seven brothers and sisters and have seen how they impact me. You know, they, they give me their wisdom about how to keep going when life is really hard. So what month you published this book here in 2020, right? It came out in November. In November. So it's still pretty fresh. Are there steps ahead that you are looking forward to now that there is uh, perhaps a chance to take it on the road? Or is that is that in the work? I would love to. Technology is a gift. The fact that I can connect with the two of you are in three different states here, multiple time zones, I guess, even. Um, is a gift. And, you know, I've, I've been thankful to be able to connect with people through, through Zoom and other video chats and things, but there's nothing like being with people in person. And so I I don't have an extensive book tour planned at this point. Mm -hmm. We have a toddler at home. So um, that, that creates just some, some realistic expectations for our life as a family. Um, But I I am really looking forward to hopefully being able to talk at some churches and book groups and, and schools and, and being able to to dialogue with this. So those of you listening who may be part of a a book group or church group, um, either uh, virtually or in person in the right uh, capacity, you might be available for that. Yeah. yeah, and actually, I can offer your listeners, I've put out this offer, and I have yet to have any of the plans solidify as yet, but if you have a book club, and your book club is going to read, or like a small group, and you're going to read through Companions in the Darkness together, I will come virtually to one session. I have to say virtually, because I can't promise to fly everywhere, but um, I'll okay. come come to a session and I'm happy to lead a discussion or do author Q&A or whatever might be helpful to you. So if that's something that you're listening and you're interested in doing, shoot me a message through my website or get a hold of me online and uh, let's set something up. Our church's senior pastor has a book club and I will let him know on Sunday. Oh, Howard would really enjoy that. I think Howard would be all over that. I would be delighted. He would really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, we also have a group, uh, it's not a defined church, so to speak, but we have a, a group called Faithful Friends, and we, uh, ha- it's a mental health support group. I may even discuss the idea among, uh, among some of our folks to do that. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. So. I've got one last question, Diana. It looked like you're writing a blog for a foundation out of Massachusetts. Is that right? I I am. Yeah. So I work uh, very part time for a nonprofit called the Veer Institute. And um, Veer is is passionate about equipping and empowering church leaders to cultivate whole life discipleship cultures in their churches. So there's no sacred secular divide. All of our life matters to God. And so creating a space where that is just the lifeblood of the church, where people are being discipled and and have a vision for God as a work in their everyday. So I work on communications for them and writing, and um, it's been such a gift to be able to work with them. We got connected throughout the course of the pandemic. So not expected, um, but a gift. That's great. 
That's great. Well, very good. Is there anything more you want to add to uh, to feature what you're doing or anything uh, um, for the good of the record? Um, no, it's been such it's been such a joy to talk with you guys. This is yeah. this has been really fun and. Yeah, I just I hope that as people, if people pick up this book, um, that that what they're left with is is two things: one, an awareness that they're not alone, and I'm thankful for podcasts like yours because I think that message yeah. comes through. Um, but just you know, I think in that with these stories, we need to know that God can still use us. You know, this is yes. not the end, and God can work in the midst of it. And and um, the second thing I think is that people have the courage to tell their own stories. I think yes, we talked earlier about the stories that we tell. And it's not just the stories that we choose to tell from history; it's the stories we choose to tell now. And so I hope mm-hmm. that these stories from history give people today the courage to, to share their own story of what their struggle has been like, how they've survived, and, and how God has shown up for them in the midst of that. You said at the beginning that for healing for you is living in the abundant fullness of life as God intended. And I think that's a remarkable statement. Uh, I, I think being able to help people heal by actually showing what has been suffering from some of our people we know very well within various religious traditions will really impact people in a very deep level because as as you say we don't tell these stories often enough and why do we feel guilty when we have a down day when in fact mother teresa mother teresa of all people said i have come to love the darkness i thought your chapter on her was profound. You're doing very important work. Please continue. Yes. When we started this three years ago, there was emerging voices. You know, Amy Simpson, she wrote here on the back of, of your book. We've just discovered more and more, you know, partly because we are obviously interviewing and seeking people out. But, you know, you are a young woman who is taking on a very difficult subject and can speak both scholarly, but also in a personal way that makes it real. So um, please continue your work, and and you'll bring a lot of healing to a lot of people that way. So thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. That means a lot. Thank you. Tony, Diana Groover. Yeah, Diana was a good guest. She certainly fits the, the sweet spot for our program in terms of the in terms of the intersection between faith and mental illness and also in terms of uh, reflecting on what does healing mean to you yeah I know uh, for me as I listened to her describe her research and her writing I came away with a, a sense of encouragement that as a believer being depressed being having mental health issues of whatever kind, is not an indication of a lack of faith. Some of the greatest pillars of the church and of the faith community have been people who uh, privately, and in some cases even publicly, wrestled with uh, the darkness. Yes. You know, I asked her that question about, in her research, how many people she came across that she could have highlighted, and I really didn't know how she would respond. And she said there really wasn't a whole lot. Yeah. You know, she was really hitting some of the more public right. ones. And 
in a way, sheds a light on how much we don't want to talk about in the church. We even struggle to talk about it in church history. She had an example of uh, someone almost apologizing for Spurgeon's mental health struggles in his Mm -hmm. life. And we don't need to apologize for mental health struggles that we go through. And as leaders, you know, I I think that we've got to be a little more vulnerable, a little more um, transparent about struggles so that, you know, many people who are going through real crises dealing with their diagnosis can feel like they're a bring their whole self into their church life, into their spiritual life. Yeah, I think both the question of who reveals what they wrestle with and how it will impact their ministry, we have a long way to go. We, we have these leaders to thank, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother, Mother Teresa, but Mother Teresa didn't really do it in her own lifetime. It was really a decision her confessor made to do so, to make it public after her, her death, but really, oh, wow. really her, uh, she was honest and faithful in bringing her own struggles to pen and paper. And within the confessional tradition, it really surprised a lot of people after her death and they saw these published. Yeah. It, it just really needs to be known that a mental health symptom is not a sign of spiritual weakness. Those things have got to be untangled and highlighting spiritual leaders who have struggled is a great way of being able to get past that that kind of stigma. And also, as we talk about our pivotal question with healing, having mental health issues does not mean we we are not being healed in 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 faith in christ yes it, it is not an indication that we have somehow failed to draw on the healing touch of christ that's right it's very likely that we that we are looking more profoundly to to that healing touch mm-hmm. you know i would go as far to say that people who experience mental illness you know in many ways can through that process, become closer to Christ, you know, have a a deeper spiritual experience. And Cooper, who she highlighted, was very, I think, profoundly ill at times Mm -hmm. in his life. And yet some of what he produced in his hymns are, you know, Mm -hmm. sung today because spiritual resonance of which, you know, he, he wrote and the experiences that he lived through. What we deal with, in many ways, can be a source of of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to lean into that. You bet. So thank you, Diana. That was great. I'm very happy to have met you. And now let's uh, transition here to to talking a little bit about where we've been. Tony, you have been all over the place. My wife Susan and I took a cross-country trip to uh, California and back taking a southwestern route. It was beautiful, first of all, to see the country and uh, spend time with a woman I love and get to know her better. And, and it was also extremely challenging with, with my illness. I'm, I'm still recuperating. When we were traveling, it was sometimes difficult. Uh, we ran into some car troubles. We made it through, and I'm grateful for the piscinas for opening their home to us. And to see time with the the grandchildren, little Ruby, the youngest grandchild, made a 
a fast friend with Riley, our uh, lab, and yeah. they, they bonded. The dog went on the journey with you. Oh, Riley yeah. made every, it all the way. That's awesome. Every, yeah. mi- every mile. A, a lot of this was new territory for you, right? You hadn't seen a lot of this part of the country. So a lot of this is new territory for me. I had lived in St. Louis, and I had visited parts of the West, but much of it, um, Oklahoma, parts of Texas, New Mexico, beautiful state, Arizona. A lot of it was just brand new terrain. It was it was great to see. What was a, a natural feature that was really uh, great to see? I, you, you didn't go to the Grand Canyon, but surely you saw some other really nice wonders of our country. Along the way in New Mexico and Arizona, the clay formations and the you know, the various colorings of the mountains, er, mountainous areas, uh, and how quickly the um, weather could change. We would be traveling in a valley where it would be um, 50 degrees, and then we would go up into the mountains, and it would just, you could just see the thermometer just going down and down, and, and then it would start to snow, and Wow. It was quite awe-inspiring. How about you? Uh, going well. Uh, made a raised bed for the yard, raised bed number two. I've planted yes. all my spring crops. I've got some sugar snap peas that I saved from last year that um, I've planted again. So it's a second-generation seed for my property. I'm really curious to see how that tastes and you know if it grows well or not. It is Lent, and I've been doing a, a haiku uh, every day for the last, uh, what is it now, five weeks, six weeks? And I'll, I'll share some of those on our <laughs> on our uh, website, uh, but that's been a good practice. You know, I, I kind of go in and out with with the writing of haikus over the last five or six years, so <laughs> it's been, been nice doing that. Mm-hmm. I really find it to be a very good practice for me. Yeah. Uh, keeping things simple and trying to pack as much into... Uh, 17 syllables as possible. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a friend who uh, responded to one on Facebook and w- responded with her own haiku about how a haiku should be about nature. You know, that's kind of like yeah. the uh, traditional, very, yeah, very traditional Japanese style. And, and she was commenting on a, uh, a haiku about me talking to a friend at a taco restaurant (laughs) (laughs) that is also a panaderia so it's like a bakery a mexican bakery and i said so are are tacos and sweetbreads not nature (laughs) it's all there man yeah uh last thing i want to say um i'm really into supporting the environment i saw that uh i am greta about the uh young swedish student Greta Thunberg that documentary just came out and I watched it on Friday with Jen and it it's very moving I I would highly recommend watching it the way that she is on the autism spectrum (laughs) and that is uh, very much woven throughout the documentary which I thought (laughs) was done very well you know, it's really all pretty much from her own words. And the relationship that she has with her father in this documentary is really something to appreciate. Because, 
you know, talk about like a reluctant spokesperson. This is just um, a girl who went on a climate strike because she more or less started obsessing about the planet when she saw some videos about natural disasters and went into what, what the father called a selective uh, mutism where she pretty much didn't talk to anyone but family for, I think they said three years when she wow. was very young. To see her go in front of all these people and the level of self-awareness she has of like the impact she's having or she is not having with, you know, the adults in the room, you could say. Mm-hmm. It's worth a watch. It's very inspiring. Yeah. She's a very, very compassionate young child, and she comes across as angry sometimes. Yeah. But uh, the heart is golden. Great. I'll have to check that out. The part of autism that I, I think she talks about is how she understands it can make her more focused on a subject mm-hmm. than someone who doesn't have autism. And. Mm-hmm. At the end, she's like, I wish we could all be able to focus a little bit more. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Maybe appreciate that part of her personality. You know what I mean? Right, um, right. I hope she doesn't burn out and uh, people can appreciate what what she's doing. Well, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's very good to be back. You know, I'm, I'm set for my vaccine. Yeah, I've had number one and I have number two on April 2nd. I think it's fair to say our next show is going to be together in this basement. I think that's probably uh, a, a strong likelihood. I think we can do that. Yeah. We need that, Tony. I'm, yep. I'm ready for that. That's yeah. right. Okay. Well, very good. Happy Easter. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. And and so I, I, I will say very definitively that tacos are part of nature. Sure.